what is before you. Text will be from Galatians 5.1 and 1 Corinthians 9.19. But the title of today's sermon is Martin Luther and his book or treatise, The Freedom of a Christian, which was written in 1520. But let me read this, these words, the couple of verses for all of us. Let me read these verses for us. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5, 1. But the same Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. Amen. A few years ago, when I first came to this church, 2018 fall, I preached about Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. And one of those Sundays, Bill Shishko stopped me and said, Sam, for 37 or 8 years of his ministry, he said, I've never heard a minister preach from the actual text of 95 Thesis, he said. That got me thinking. Just looking back my own life, I've heard about a million times that Martin Luther nailed 95 Thesis. But I've never heard what was in it, 95 Thesis. What are 95 Thesis? Nowadays, you could look it up in computer. But even 20 years ago, Unless you had some kind of book or something like that, you would not know what that 95 thesis was saying. So that conversation got me thinking. And I remember making up my mind that if I ever come to preach during the month of Reformation, that I would introduce some of the best-known documents or sermons by the reformers. And obviously we are not going to read a book together in a, in a given Sunday. But probably even the key themes or the phrases that I may give to you to think about our Reformation. And I understand this is November, so I'm just going to pretend that this is still October. And um, just to give you an idea, we are familiar with Calvin. Even when I look back at my own seminary education, we had to read a lot of Calvin. But Luther, only during my medieval church history class. But just to give you an idea, how much this man, Martin Luther, wrote or spoke Weimar Ausgabe, the collection of Luther's work, started in 1883 and was only done in the 21st century. 
And each volume contains more than 800 pages, and there are a lot. You could look it up. For us, for American audience, Luther's works, LW, is what we are familiar with. That collection of work began 19, in 1955, and 1986, 55 volumes were published, and Concordia Publishing House is still adding more. It's not done. It is a staggering amount of works, what he wrote down and what he spoke. As Elder Tom said, pick it up, the table talk, that name comes from the table talk that Martin Luther gave while he's eating dinner or after dinner to his students because his house uh, was a dormitory. That's table talk. That's a lot. In 1520, Martin Luther wrote three of his most important and most enduring works for the following generations. Those are, they are, the address to the German nobility and on the Babylonian captivity of the church. And the third one is what we are going to look at today. The title of it is The Freedom of a Christian. You could guess why I picked that. Past few weeks, I am not lost. We are still in Philippians 1.1, and we've been looking at the term doulos, and how it should translate. We should translate that into slave, and obviously slave versus freedom. That's where we are. And if we could bring Martin Luther here today as a guest preacher today, could you give us a sermon today on the freedom of a Christian? He will say yes because he has written about it. And it is a short little treatise and it is a little book. And what I'm going to do today is to, I'm going to give you uh, his work. I am not preaching in a sense, but I am going to give you some direct quotations from his work so that you could hear him. Obviously, he is not an inspired person. As important as Martin Luther and Calvin, those people are, they are not inspired people. But at the same time, his exposition of it is true and it is Edifying for some, I understand this could be a hard Sunday. It'll be very difficult. So I thought about how am I going to do this? Am I going to give you some handouts so that you could read along? And I said, at the end of the day, no, I'm just going to read, give to you, and give you some commentary on it. So I hope you stay awake. I will try to be brief. And I will give you some, you know, comments as we go on. On the freedom of a Christian, what would Martin Luther say? The venerable reformer, the first generation reformer. He begins his work in this way. Many people have considered Christian faith an easy thing. 
and not a few have given it a place among the virtues. They do this because they have not experienced it and have never tasted the great strength there is in faith. Did you hear that? That very first paragraph got me thinking. Martin Luther is going to talk about faith that he has experienced. He's not simply going to give us theology. But he says, you know, many people think faith is an easy thing. And in his time, it, is, it was a virtue that man should possess. But he says, no, that's wrong. Because they have never tasted the power of faith. And he's going to give you what he has experienced. And he says this. To make the way smoother for the unlearned, I'm going to set this down, he says. This work was uh, written in Latin first. You have to understand, during Reformation, how did different people from England, Germany, Switzerland, how did they read each other because they all wrote their things in Latin. That's why they are able to read German Luther's work. Englishmen could pick it up and it is written in Latin and and they are able to understand each other. But this work on the freedom of Christian, he wrote it in German as well. When he does that, his intended target audience is whom? Regular. German people. Unlearned probably means who do not know Latin. So he says this, and I want you to look at the reference that I've given you on that bulletin. This is his thesis for his work. Probably the most important two sentences that he has written down. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And he says, A Christian is a perfectly dutiful sovereign of all, subject to all. And he says, These two theses seem to contradict each other, but both are Paul's own statements. I've given you Galatians 5.1, but he talks about Romans 13.8. But in the end, he is simply saying what the apostle has said. And the paradigm for this is Christ. He says, so Christ was at the same time a free man and a servant. At the same time, referring to Philippians 2, six. Seven. Today, we will only have time for the first sentence. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And he will give three reasons or three benefits of faith. So I'm going to give you those Quotes. He begins by saying this. It is evident 
that no external thing has any influence in producing Christian righteousness or freedom or in producing unrighteousness or servitude. None of the external works will produce anything good in us. That's what he's saying. He says, The righteousness and the freedom of the soul require something far different since the things which have been mentioned could be done by any wicked person. Such works produce nothing but hypocrites. One thing, and only one thing, is necessary for Christian life. Righteousness and freedom. That one thing is what? That one thing is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ. See, his preaching. One thing and only one thing is necessary for you. What is it? You will expect him to say faith, but he doesn't say. He says the gospel of Christ. That's what you need. Let us then consider it certain and firmly established that the soul can do without anything except the word of God and that where the word of God is missing, there is no help at all for the soul. If it has the word of God, it is rich and lacks nothing, since it is the word of life, truth, light, and so on. By this time, you know what Germans are thinking as they are reading that portion? Do I have the word of God in my life? That's what they are asking. Because why? The medieval Christianity is all about what? Going to the church and doing the sacraments, penance. But he is saying, what, you know what you need, your soul needs, is the gospel, the word of God. Do you have the word of God? Do you receive the word of God? If you do not have the word of God, you are missing everything for your soul. What about you? Do you have constant input of God's word in your life? You could ask yourself. When that word of God is missing, your soul is lacking in everything. He says, then what is that word of God? I answer, Luther says, as the apostle explains in Romans 1, the word is the gospel of God concerning his son who was made flesh, suffered, rose again from the dead, and was glorified through the spirit who sanctified. What is the word? He doesn't say the Bible in general sense. Your soul needs the word, but the word is the gospel of Christ, he says. To preach Christ means to feed the soul, make it righteous, set it free, save it, provided it, that is the soul, believes the preaching. What the soul needs is the gospel. And only the gospel, only Christ will set you free, make it righteous. For whom? Those people who believe that preaching. And he says this, Faith alone is the saving and efficacious use of the Word of God. Faith alone is the saving use of the Word. 
If I ask you, what is the most famous theme of Martin Luther? You will say sola fide, justification by faith alone. But think back, where does he, Luther, talk about sola fide? Do you know? He doesn't have systematic theology book that talks about sola fide. But in portions like this, his theme, recurring theme, will be always to emphasize faith. And he's not afraid, as you have heard, that faith is experiential faith. And he's preaching the gospel over against the medieval Christianity. That everybody was born Christian, everybody was baptized, and everybody was considered to be a Christian. Everybody's doing the work, penance, sacraments. But he is preaching the gospel. You know what you need is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. But that alone will not save you. But faith alone is the saving use of the word. And every German who's reading this or hearing some, from someone who's expounding this will ask themselves, do I have that faith? And we can, in turn, ask that same question to ourselves. Do I have that faith? Again, he says this, The word of God cannot be received and cherished by any works, whatever, but only by faith. Therefore, it is clear that as the soul needs only the word of God for its life and righteousness, so it is justified by faith alone and not any works. For, for if it could be justified by anything else, it would not need the word and consequently it would not need faith. No other work makes a Christian. Therefore, true faith in Christ is a treasure beyond comparison which it brings with it complete salvation and saves men from every evil. Again, faith alone without works justifies, frees, and saves. So if somebody asks you, where did Martin Luther talk about faith alone? In place like this, the freedom of a Christian. So the first benefit or power of faith is that only faith sets a man's soul free or justifies it. What is faith is? Faith alone does that. That's the first. So freedom of a Christian, how are we set free? The first point is by faith alone because Faith alone could receive the word of God, the gospel of Christ, who sets us free through our faith. That is a good point. So I'm done with first point. Let's move on to the second point. What is the second power of faith? Such faith trusts God wholeheartedly. By trusting Him and His promises, we render the very highest worship. In trusting God, we consent to His will. And in consenting, 
we allow our souls to be treated according to God's good pleasure, because it cannot doubt that who is just and good and wise will dispose and provide all things well. So, for Luther, obedience is not rendered by works, but by faith alone. Again and again, he emphasizes the faith or the role of faith. Why? He keeps on saying the external obedience could be done by the wicked people. So that's not good works. It does not add unto our soul. But true obedience starts from faith and faith alone. And listen to this. From that argument, he talks about righteousness of our soul. Seeing that we honor Him, God counts us righteous for the sake of our faith. Listen to his quote. When God sees that we consider Him truth, and by the faith of our heart pay Him the great honor which is due Him, He does us that great honor of considering us truthful, and righteous for the sake of our faith. If I ask you, what is sola fide? What is justification? Good Christian will say it is the forgiveness of our sins, of our sins, but at the same time, what? Counting us righteous for Christ's sake, right? That is the doctrine of justification, the two way, double fold transaction. Not only that we are forgiven, but we are counted righteous is the gospel. We talk about that's Luther's gospel or Paul's gospel. But I've never really noticed this and listened to this section. What he's arguing is that God is counting us righteous because of our faith that confesses God to be true and righteous. And let me give you this quotation and and the second point will be done. But listen carefully. I've read it many times to understand what he's saying. How can God count us righteous? We say because of our faith. But he goes deeper. And listen to this. Faith works truth and righteousness by giving God what belongs to him. Therefore, God in turn glorifies our righteousness. It is true and just that God is truthful and just, and to consider and confess Him to be so is the same thing as being truthful and just. I think what he's saying is this. We usually say this. How are we reckoned by God to be righteous? We say because of our faith in Christ. And we say faith is instrumental cause, right? Faith is instrumental cause of our righteousness or justification. But what Luther is saying in this section is, our faith is not simply an instrument. Our faith that confesses God to be what He says He is, is so valuable 
It not only functions as channel, but it almost becomes our righteousness. Because that confession is so valuable from God's sight, He considers our faith to be righteousness. So He's not afraid to say, faith is more than simply an instrument. But God reckons that precious faith that confesses and considers God to be true and just. God so loves that confession and faith, God reckons that faith to be our righteousness, he says. You can think about that. So, let's recap. First part of faith is it frees us from all kinds of works. What works? In his context, he has in mind all kinds of human inventions of medieval Catholicism, especially penance. But you have to understand, Luther is not simply a scholar or debater. He's a pastor. I've read from Carl Truman's book. While he is engaging in all these fights, as you know, he's fighting left and right, writing, debating, hiding for about a year. During all of those times, you know what he doesn't do in his castle church in Wittenberg is that he does not change the liturgy for seven years. He's arguing for all of this faith alone, And you'll expect him to say, you know, all of these external works, we are freed from that by faith, so get rid of all of that. Get rid of penance, get rid of sacraments, seven sacraments of medieval Catholicism, get rid of all of that. We don't need that. God's word contradicts all of those human inventions, he may say. What's interesting is that he's doing that to the wider audiences against Catholic Church, But because he's a pastor, he understands that to take away what people are so familiar with in their entire lifetime of what Christian should be or what they do in the church will create chaos. So he doesn't change. So in this freedom of a Christian, in this book, he's talking about freedom from all works, but he never condemns those human inventions. He talks about works of the law. Pastoral sign. The second power of faith is what? As we have just have heard. Probably some of you, probably just it passed over you. But the second power of faith is that faith is so valuable, God reckons that faith to be our righteousness. Third one. Third power of faith, and I will be done with this, and this is something that you could chew for a long time. First power of faith, it frees us from the works. Second power of faith, we are counted righteous because of our faith in Christ. And in introducing the third power of faith, he uses these words. The third incomparable benefit of faith is that, you ready for this? 
It unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. This morning I was listening to my professor, who was my professor in my seminary. He is, uh, his name is Lane Tipton, Dr. Tipton. He's now a minister in the OPC, Trinity OPC, Eastern Pennsylvania. He was, his thing was broadcasting in the morning, so I was listening to my old professor, my beloved professor. And he was saying, again, the thing that he taught us, emphasizing Calvin's theology of union with Christ. And I am saying today, Luther, in his early work of the freedom of a Christian, he has all of those three points. Freedom from works, faith alone, because of our faith, God counts us righteous, not because of our works, counting us righteous is the second point. The third point that we usually say is Calvin's, the third book in his institute, the great doctrine of the union with Christ. I would say, well, Luther had it as well. Union with Christ. The third incompatible benefit of faith is that it unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. And he's talking to regular German folks. And he invokes many images and the chief one is marriage. And listen to this. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul, your soul, the soul is full of sins and death and damnation. But let faith come between them, between Christ and our dead soul. Let faith come between them, and sin's death and damnation will be Christ's. While grace, life, and salvation will be the soul's. For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's, and bestow upon her the things that are his. Jesus is your bridegroom, and all that is his is yours, all that is yours is his. That double transaction that second generation reformer Calvin expounds in the third book of his institute, Luther already talks about. But here is another thing. I will give you the quotation, and, and even I was shocked. I picked up this book probably after now 17 or 18 years after I've read this book. And as I was reading it again this past week, past week, it made more sense. But he says in third incompatible benefit of that faith, living faith, is this. Here we have a most pleasing vision, not only of communion, but of a blessed struggle and victory. And salvation and redemption. Christ is God and man in one person. He has neither sinned nor died, and he is not condemned, and he cannot sin, die, or be condemned. His righteousness, life, and salvation are unconquerable, eternal, and omnipotent. 
Then, by the wedding ring of faith, he shares in the sins and death and pains of hell, which are his brides. And death and hell could not swallow him up. These were necessarily swallowed up by him in a mighty duel. For his righteousness is greater than the sins of all men, his life stronger than death, his salvation more invincible than hell. What he is saying is this. When we think about union with Christ, what comes to your mind? We usually talk about union and communion with Christ. Or the benefits of salvation. That's how we usually understand the union. But in 1520, the chief benefit of us being united to the risen Christ through our faith is the victory. As you have heard, because Jesus cannot sin, Jesus cannot die, Jesus cannot be condemned, what is the significance of us being united to that God-man? Who cannot be condemned. That is the victory and salvation and redemption. And I was, I was just amazed this week. Have you ever thought about your union with Christ as your victory in Christ? All of your struggles against sin and death and stench of death. Do you take comfort in the fact that you are united to that invincible Christ, then nothing will bring him down. And in fact, Christ is the one who will swallow up entire death because his righteousness prevail against all sins, death, and pains of hell. You have to understand, he is the first generation reformer. He doesn't have the benefit of reading someone who is greater than him and already in 1520, 1517, that's when he, only three years later, he writes all of those three, the most important treatises in his life. And the freedom of a Christian, if I ask you to write something on the freedom that you have in Christ, can you come up with these statements? It is amazing. You know why and how Reformation won? Obviously, God was on our side. But humanly speaking, Luther outsold everyone. Only Luther's work will sell. So those Catholic theologians cannot find printers, printing machine, and people who will print their works because nobody's buying their works. That's how they want, how he won. And I've given you that, that picture, that cute picture. In German title, on the freedom of a Christian mansion, Christian men, Freiheit, the freedom in German. And those works, whenever they find Dr. Martin Luther and Wittenberg, Wittenberg will be the powerhouse in Europe of printing house. Traditionally, it is France or Venice or Leipzig in, in, in Germany, but Wittenberg will be the Place it is, it will sell Luther's works. This work, some of you may be wondering, scratching your heads, 
But if any German person who is serious about their own faith will buy it, read it, fathers will explain these to their children on the dinner table, all of those. It's not easy, but they'll hear it. So today, when we think about freedom of a Christian, let me give you a quiz. How are you free in Christ? What are those three benefits? Can you remember those? First is, faith alone sets us free. Yes, Christ sets us free. But Luther is a pastor. He's not content with the fact of the gospel. But he's pressing people. Do you have that faith? Do you have that faith? You go to church, but do you have that saving faith? He's asking that. Second is, your faith is so valuable that God reckons it to be your righteousness, just as God reckoned Abram's faith to be as his righteousness. So we learn that our faith is really valuable. We have to confess what he says about himself. And the third, how are you free? By faith. Oh, we're not, we're not going to go to hell. We understand. But in his exposition, he's saying, you are in union with Christ. Because he is invincible and he is victorious, your struggle is done. You do not, even though he doesn't say, you do not have to put your hope in penance. Over and over again. Beating your own body. Doing all kinds of works. Purchasing What is indulgence that I've talked about here? What is indulgence that they sold? Indulgence was a certificate, a piece of paper that they had to buy. And Tetzel came by the river, the other town, selling that certificate. Let's say it costs you $100 and above, depending on how many relatives, dead relatives, that you are buying them for. Martin Luther nailed 9-5 Theses, not because he wanted attention, but because he was a pastor. He didn't want his people to go over the river, the other side of the town, and buying those certificates for the dead relatives. And he would set this. On the 95 Thesis and on. And today I have given you some of the direct quotations from his most important work. The freedom of a Christian. And since we've been looking at the freedom and slave and master from Philippians 1. I have given you that. And his first thesis is this. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. I don't know if you have caught what he's saying, but I'm going to explain that next week. I'll end with last sentence from him. Does the believing soul, by means of the pledge of his faith, is free in Christ? I hope and pray that you possess that faith. The faith that frees you 
in Christ. That faith, God counts you as righteous in Christ. That faith unites you to the risen and victorious Christ so that we are truly and free indeed in Christ. All because of God-given saving faith. Pray to God that He may give you that faith. And for your children, let's pray.